Well, it is Palm Sunday, uh, or what is traditionally celebrated as Palm Sunday, the week before Jesus was crucified, the, uh, the Sabbath day. And so we're going to be reading from Matthew 21, which is a recounting uh, of that of the events. And you can see there in verse 5 what we read in the beginning. Uh, Matthew helpfully quotes Zechariah for us to explain what's going on as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Uh, but Elizabeth is going to come and read it for us. Elizabeth, if you would. Matthew 21, 1 to 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what, the prophet, what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, uh, put their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and the crowds followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. We're going to be continuing our series in 1 Samuel. Even though it's Palm Sunday, we are going to read about it, but we're going to continue in 1 Samuel. Next week, we'll take a break for Easter to preach about some Easter themes. But 1 Samuel is all about this theme, that God is king. God reigns. He rules. And we've been learning about what he does with kings, with priests, with judges, how he raises up and, and puts them down as needed. And you'll see today, uh, Saul gets into some trouble. Uh, God exercises his dominion, his kingship over sort of the, the lesser king, Saul. Before we get into it together, Heidi's going to come and read it for us. It's on the back middle panel of your bulletin or, or just scroll down if you're using the digital one. Uh, Heidi. Okay, 1 Samuel 13. Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for and two years over Israel. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gabeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philist Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. 
Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited for seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah to the land of Shuel, another company turned towards Bethhoron, and another company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam towards the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle, and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Uh, in The Princess Bride, you know, that famous movie, uh, there's a scene that really speaks to my heart, and it's this one. Uh, the character, Inigo Montoya, you know, the swordsman, he's waiting at the top of an impossibly high cliff and for the man in black, who we don't yet know at that point of the story. Now, the man in black has just almost fallen to his death, but now he's attempting to, to climb, to, to ascend this impossibly difficult cliff. And Inigo Montoya is at the top waiting for him, but only so he can kill him. But Inigo Montoya gets bored, and he's, he's waiting and waiting, he gets bored and he's pacing, and so finally he leans over the edge and he says, I don't suppose you could speed things up, you know, to the man in black, and, and, then, and then he doesn't, you know, whatever, and then a little while later he, he throws a rope down to him, to this man in black, so that he can climb faster, even though that as soon as he gets to the top, you know, they're going to fight and, and duel to the death. And I love that scene, and it speaks to me because I too like to speed things up. I too uh, am a somewhat impatient person. Even the pace with which I speak out on Sunday mornings, you, you may have guessed that patience, not my favorite thing in the world. And it makes me sympathize with Inigo Montoya, and it makes me sympathize with King Saul. Because in this passage, day after day, Saul is waiting. He, Samuel isn't showing up, isn't showing up. If text messaging were you know, invented when this passage 
took place, we can easily imagine Saul sending the, I don't suppose you could speed things up meme, you know, over and over to Samuel, like, where are you? I've been waiting for you. But just like Montoya, Saul gets to the point where he decides, I can't wait any longer, and he takes matters into his own hands. But this isn't a movie, <laughs> you know. Uh, Saul's impatience, it's a direct contradiction of what God has in- instructed him to do, and it has tragic consequences for Saul and Saul's descendants. I, I think there's a lot here that's going to be relevant to us, so we're going to dive in. Three parts. A severe test, we'll, fi- we'll talk about what's going on, why they get into this sticky situation. A failed test, why, why he fails, and then some consequences. Now, this passage opens with a quick historical summary. You probably notice there, right in verse 1, the grammar is a little bit awkward. There's ellipses. Those are like the little dots, you know, uh, in the first line. Essentially, what's going on there is the most ancient manuscripts we have, there are kind of parts missing or parts that don't make sense. And so the ESV, this translation, puts these ellipses in to show that something is off. Now, there's a longer textual thing, there's rabbit holes you can go down. I think the most straightforward way to understand that first verse is just to say this, that when this story takes place, Saul has been king for two years. We aren't sure how old he is, we aren't sure of a couple other things, but we're pretty confident he's been king for about two years. So pretty early in his reign still. Uh, But probably more than a year has passed since the fight with Nahash at Jabesh Gilead. If you're here two weeks ago, uh, we did that. But you see the kingship's developing. There's now a small standing army. Uh, Saul has 2,000 men with him at this place called Michmash. That's a little bit north of Gibeah, where Saul's son Jonathan has an additional 1,000 men. So standing army, 3,000 soldiers total. You know, everyone else goes home to, to farm or, you know, live, whatever else they're doing. Israelite things. And in between Jonathan at Gibeah, Saul at Michmash, there's this place called Geba, and that is a Philistine garrison. So a fort of some kind, you know, some sort of standing force there. We aren't sure how big it was, anything like that. But Jonathan goes off and defeats them. He fights them. Now, there's a, even a bit of a, a hint of a shadow here. Why is Jonathan doing the fighting? It was Saul that as king, who was supposed to lead the armies of God's people as they fought their enemies. Saul has twice as many men. He's got 2,000. Jonathan's only got 1,000. Geba, geographically, it's equidistant from Saul and Jonathan, or, or very close to equidistant. So it wasn't like Jonathan could get there faster or anything. The only thing we can conclude, based on the evidence we have, is that Jonathan is acting more kingly than his father Saul. And by the way, as you read further in 1 Samuel, we're not going to get to all of it in this series, but that's a recurring theme. Over and over, Jonathan is the one who acts like the king, not Saul. But fighting the Philistines, that's what Samuel, the judge, had told Saul he should be doing two years before. Saul apparently is not fighting the enemies of God's people. Jonathan is. And Jonathan goes, he defeats the garrisons, he takes Geba, way to go, Jonathan. But the Philistines hear about it. They become, a, you know, Israel becomes a stench in their nostrils. This is this great phrase. Saul knows trouble's brewing. He sounds the alarm. In the end of verse 3, he says, let the Hebrews hear. Essentially, he's sending out a code, a, a message for national mobilization. All the warriors in all the tribes get to Gilgal because we're going to, you know, have a throwdown with the Philistines. But included in Saul's press release is kind of something interesting. If you look in verse 4, all Israel heard it said that, Who? Saul had defeated the garrison. Saul? How did, how did Saul get into the press release? No, no, it was Jonathan who defeated the garrison. It's a subtle clue by the narrator. As Saul was taking credit 
for something he didn't do. It's not a good look. At worst, or at best, maybe it's Jonathan acting in Saul's name. At worst, it's just him being deceptive, you know, lying to the people. But the people are called out, come to Gilgal, bring all your, bring all your weapons, which they don't have very many, but come stand with Saul against the Philistines, because uh, they're all mad that, Philist- that their, their garrison got defeated. Now, the, the, the Philistines don't just send a little raiding party out to deal with these pesky Israelites. They arrive with a huge, overwhelming force. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and basically, we didn't even bother to count the foot soldiers, there's so many of them. Again, text, there's an interesting textual note here, because even all kinds of scholars, conservative and otherwise, will tell you, in Hebrew, it's unclear if it's 30,000 chariots or 30 regiments of chariots. The Hebrew is kind of, is, is tricky, it's not clear what the correct translation should be. Likewise, maybe it's 6,000 horsemen, maybe it's six regiments of horsemen. Personally, I like the regiment translation better. It's not a big deal. You can believe either. Not offended. But however big the Philistine force was, we know it's utterly overwhelming, hugely overwhelming. And it's not just overwhelming. The Philistine force is, is, is much more highly sophisticated militarily than Israel. Israel fought on foot. They had some bowmen and stuff like that, some people who had slings, um, but they are facing an army with a huge number of footmen, but also chariots and horsemen who would fight alongside the foot soldiers. It'd be like fighting a modern battle, but not having an air force. Like you're just in big trouble if you're fighting an army that has both. And and also remember the standing army in Israel, it's only 3,000. So whether you have regiments or thousands, it doesn't matter. The Philistines are bringing everybody. Israel is massively outnumbered. So of course when they see this army, what happens? It's like they run. They start hiding in caves and holes and rocks in tombs and in cisterns. That's like a well. It says others are escaping across the Jordan. That's sort of like up and away from the direction the Philistines are coming to lands further away. That's why I'm calling this a severe test. Because Israel, Saul, Jonathan, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're fighting the enemies of God. Go, Saul. But as a reward for their bravery and their obedience, they're about to be obliterated by an overwhelming army. There are times in life when we get tested because we do what's right. Now, lots of times we face temptation and tests because we're not doing what's right. We're in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. But Israel and Saul, they are being tested in this chapter because they are in the right place, doing the right thing. Picture a kid standing up to a bully, you know, on behalf of a classmate. Or a whistleblower, you know, informing the the police or the CRA or whatever that that their company has been acting fraudulently. Or a person who who tells their friend that their their, their friend's spouse has been cheating on them. There are sometimes we do what's right and we suffer difficulty and we suffer tests and temptations because of it. But we all suffer tests, good or bad, and I don't mean math tests, I mean tests of our trust in God. Life unfolds for all of us in such a way there will be a time when you will be pushed to see if your faith is real. Trials put our faith on the witness stand and ask questions of it. When giant armies of Philistines come after you, do you still believe? When cancer diagnoses are made, Do you still believe when your child goes off the rails, when a teacher is being really hard on you uh, you at school or university, uh, do you still believe in God then? And it's important to acknowledge that trusting God through trials is a path all of us must walk. Obedience doesn't necessarily lead to an easier life. In fact, sometimes it leads to a more difficult life. If Jonathan had left the Philistines alone at Geba, presumably none of this would have happened. 
but here we are, Saul is under a lot of pressure, the people are scattering, his army is dwindling you know, day by day, those who left are profoundly afraid. So let me ask you this, what feels like this kind of pressure to you? Under what kind of circumstances would you feel like Saul? There's a great scene in Prince Caspian, which is one of the, the Narnia books, and the Narnian army is under siege from a powerful enemy. And the Narnian army has done everything they can. They've blown this magical horn, they're trying to call for help. They, they fought some skirmishes with the enemy, it's not going very well. But no help has come. And they're on the verge of being overrun. And Prince Caspian, the leader of the Narnian forces, he's under tremendous pressure. And in a moment of desperation, one of, Ch one of Caspian's chief lieutenants named Nicobrick he says, we've called on the kings of old, like uh, you know, Aslan and the kings of old, and the kings of old have not answered. And Nicobrick suggests turning to the evil powers of the white witch to defeat their enemies. Nicobrick faces this severe test and he fails. He gives up hope. He was ready to do evil because at least we'd win. What about you? What would you do to win when you're under severe pressure? Most of us, we're not gonna face a giant army of Philistines. We will face pressure, but let's talk about part two, a failed test. What happens next? Well, a couple chapters back, Samuel had told Saul that he should go to Gilgal and wait for Samuel to meet him there. Samuel told him to wait seven days, but then kind of says, but just wait until I get there. And when Samuel arrived, he would offer the sacrifices as was written in the law, and he would tell Saul what to do. And in verse eight, it appears that Saul has been obedient to the word of Samuel. He waits seven days but not quite. It doesn't seem, it's not exactly clear in the text, but it doesn't seem like he waits until the end of the seventh day. And again, the narrator notes, the people are scattering. It's not going well. The Philistines are coming. And Saul says, bring the burnt offering here and the peace offerings. And it says, and Saul offered the burnt offering. Now, this just wasn't a contradiction of Samuel's orders. It was a violation of the priesthood. It was a violation of the law of God. And as he finishes, Behold, which means like, look, like, just as he's like finishing, behold, Samuel walks up. You have any memories of being caught by your parents doing something you shouldn't have been doing? Had your hand in the proverbial cookie jar, it's only five minutes till dinner and your mom comes around the corner or whatever. Saul is just finishing with the sacrifice when Samuel arrives and Samuel, uh, verse 11, Samuel says, what have you done? Now. If you're like a Bible person, where have you heard that question before? What have you done? Does it ring any faint bells in your head? Any other parts of the scripture that come to mind? It's the question that God asked to Eve in the Garden of Eden. So first, the first question God asked was to Adam. He said, where are you? Talks to Adam for a little bit. Adam says, hey, it's, it, it was Eve's fault. And then he says to Eve, what have you done? Now. That question by God to Eve was giving her a chance to own up to what she had done the way that he gave Adam a chance to own up to what he had done. God knew that Eve had eaten the fruit that she ought not to have eaten. And here, Samuel, I'm sure, he knows what's going on. He knows what Saul is in the middle of doing. He's not asking a question of curiosity or of inquiry. He, he wants an explanation. And Saul does not do very well in his response. Let's look at it. Verse 11, Saul says, the people were scattering from me and you did not come within the days appointed. Look carefully, whose fault is it according to Saul? It's Samuel's fault. Why weren't you here? You were supposed to be here. You told me you'd be here. You didn't arrive. 
Just like Eve, who shifts the blame on the serpent, Saul shifts the blame to Samuel. It's Samuel's fault. You didn't hold up your end of the bargain. You should have been here. But Saul has other cards to play. He's not done talking. He's digging himself a deeper hole. Verse 12, Saul says, I saw the Philistines gathering. I really wanted to seek the favor of God. Saul says, I forced myself to offer it. What's Saul's second excuse? Oh, this is a good one. He's got a religious excuse. He offered the sacrifice because he was really trying to please God. He really wanted God's favor. Saul has a religious reason to exempt himself from following God's explicit command. And then thirdly, he's not done. <laughs> he's like, at the same time as the religious reason, Saul was also using this sort of pressure and urgency of the situation to excuse himself. The Philistines were mustering. Don't you know they have thousands and thousands and thousands of troops? Saul is saying, I couldn't wait any longer. Any reasonable person would have done what I did. The urgency of the situation, according to Saul, made God's command untenable. It was unfollowable in this circumstance. So Saul employs, in the space of like two sentences, blame shifting, religious excuses, and the urgency of life as reasons he disobeyed. Do you know what's missing from Saul's response? Confession? Repentance? This whole chapter, the chapter ends, Saul doesn't come clean. He doesn't own up to his sin. He doesn't say, what I did was wrong. He never tells Samuel or God or anyone else that he was sorry and wants to change. When faced with a severe test, Saul just fails. And instead of repenting, he doubles down. Now here's the thing. You're going to fail some tests in your life. So am I. You're going to have time when sin gets to you and, you and you stumble and you fall. And Saul shows us exactly how most of us respond when that happens. I'm not saying we should do this, but we, like Saul, often shift blame or offer religious excuses or point to external circumstances as reasons we do what we did. Let me give you some examples. What does modern blame shifting sound like? Well, I wouldn't have said that except my kids had been screaming and crying all morning and I was kind of stressed out. Well, what I did was wrong, but that person's way too sensitive. What we mean when we say these things is, it wasn't really my fault. You know sometimes when a famous person gets caught in a scandal and they make, make some sort of apology and they, you often hear something, they say something like this, well, that's not who I am. It's not really who I am. That's a kind of blame shifting. It's not taking responsibility. That's a different person did this. That, that's not really me. It's shifting the blame. Biblical, true repentance sounds different. It sounds like this after you've yelled at your kids. Well, that's exactly the kind of person I am. Or when you mistreated someone else, that, that was my fault, and I messed up, and I'm sorry. Repentance sounds like um, I may have been mistreated, other people were there, but my sin is the real problem. I mean, imagine if Saul had met Samuel, behold, Samuel, and instead of shifting blame, just said, I was scared, I didn't know what to do, I was losing faith, and I messed up, and I'm sorry. Would it have ended differently for Saul? It'd be interesting to know. Some of us offer religious excuses. Here's what a religious excuse for sin sounds like. It sounds like picking and choosing one verse or one section of scripture and using it as a reason to ignore other kinds of verses. For instance, some of us, we get so excited about speaking the truth, truth speakers. We forget the scriptures also instruct us to speak kindly. 
or to be slow to speak, <laughs> not to speak at all sometimes, to hold our tongue for wisdom's sake. Or we get excited about verses that tell us to love our fellow Christians. We can get excited about that. And we use those verses to justify ignoring our neighbors, being mean to our neighbors, never thinking about our neighbors. Saul tells Samuel, I broke God's law because I was so concerned about seeking God's favor. Look, I can tell you with a lot of confidence, you, you don't have to break one command of the Bible to fulfill a different one. That's just not how it works. The Bible doesn't force you to choose. I got Tuesday. I got to do this or this. No, there's always a way to keep God's law. So some of us blame shift. Some of us offer religious excuses. And some of us point to the urgency of life as a reason to ignore God's word. This one's common. Once you know what to look for, you'll probably see it in your life. We use circumstances to justify what we've done. Sometimes it's innocent. <laughs> like you have a hard day at school and like extra scoop of ice cream after dinner. Maybe not wise, you know, if you do it all the time, but like it's, it's not a sin, whatever, it's fine. But other times we cross the line, don't we? Frustration with your spouse, a difficult circumstance, a trial, a test, leads to justifying pornography use. Or a stressful boss leads to you yelling at, at your kids. Or canceled plans of a fun outing leads to a lack of kindness with your housemate, your roommate. Do circumstances play a factor? Of course. Saul had a real army, a real big army facing him. But the reason we sin is because of our hearts, not because of our circumstances. See, maturity in the Christian life is about you understanding that you are at the root of most of your problems. <laughs> Circumstances, other people, evil forces, whatever. They're factors, but you have to own up to your own stuff. And Saul doesn't. Which leads us to part three, consequences. Samuel, he does not put up with Saul's excuses. Verse 13, you have done foolishly, and you have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Saul has been foolish and he's been sinful. The excuses, they don't cut it. Saul, uh, Samuel doesn't accept them. The real problem at the heart of this story, Samuel says, is that Saul was not wise, but he was sinful. And then Samuel spells out the consequences. End of verse, scene, end of verse 13. Samuel tells Saul, your kingdom might have continued forever. If you'd kept God's word, there was that chance. But now, verse 14, Saul, you, your reign will end with you. Your son will not sit on the throne. Your kingdom will not continue. In your place, God will find a man after his own heart. It's an interesting line there in verse 14. It sort of hints that Saul was chosen partly because he looked like a king. That will not be true with the next king. The next king will be chosen for what he looks like on the inside. But anyways, after Samuel pronounces this consequence, he leaves Gilgal. Just leaves Saul standing there. And the end of this passage, and we, we don't have time to go through all the details, it just kind of spells out the difficult situation Israel is in. Saul is down to 600 men. He started the chapter with 3,000. He's only at 600. And on the other hand, the Philistines, they divide their army into three raiding parties, and they're just moving through the land unopposed. All those places are just like different roads they're traveling on. It's just bleak. Saul has been abandoned by Samuel. He's lost in his own sin. Saul's future has been destroyed. His son will not sit on the throne. And the Israelite army is fragmenting. The Philistines are doing whatever they want. And oh, by the way, Israel doesn't even have any weapons because the Philistines have took them all away and kicked all the blacksmiths out. It's bad. I have two important questions about these consequences. First question. The punishment seems out of proportion to the sin. It's one mistake... Why is it such an extreme consequence? 
And for context in this question, we can think about kings that come along later. David, Solomon, a bunch of others, they sin gravely, but they're not abandoned. It's, it's easy to sympathize with Saul. Like, he got really close. He almost waited long enough. The army was scattering. The Philistines were mustering. How should we understand these consequences for what feels like to us not that serious of a sin? Well, the first thing I think is that it's important to note uh, we and God do not judge on the same scale or use the same weights. To maybe to us, this feels relatively minor. It did not feel that way to God, or it was not uh, viewed that way by God. God knew this was a major indicator of a, of, of a heart, Saul's heart, that was taking God's word too lightly. Second, we also might consider the lack of repentance in Saul. There's no hint of sorrow over his sin. There's no whispers of repentance. Saul just sort of shrugs, and, and as Saul goes on in 1 Samuel, this is, this is who he is. Proverbs 3 verse 5 tells us not to lean on our own understanding. And it's pretty clear that Saul is a man who leans on his own understanding. This moment told a whole story and it predicts a whole future about who Saul was going to become. It was a sign of who he really was. So we might say the consequences fit the heart of Saul, even if to us they, they seem or they feel excessive for this one action. But my second question is this, how do consequences fit with the idea of forgiveness and mercy? I think modern Christians, some of us come along to texts like this, and we struggle because we're like, well, I thought we believed in a God who forgives, and He's merciful. Uh, uh, why are there consequences if we believe in forgiveness? Well, on one hand, Saul doesn't ask for forgiveness, so, you know, kind of makes the point moot, but let's just go with the question because I think it's an important one. Because of the way God's wired the world, consequences for sin uh, and evil behavior are not necessarily at odds with forgiveness. Forgiveness is about a person standing with God. Consequences are about sort of this world ripple effects of your actions. For instance, if you rob a jewelry store on the way home today, I don't even know if they have jewelry stores anymore, but if, if you rob one, you can be forgiven by God for that theft. You, you can be made right with God, even if you're a thief you still will likely bear the consequences of a jail term or some other kind of reparation. Consequences and forgiveness, they're not opposed to each other. In fact, they often come together or they walk side by side. If you wound a friend with your words, just because you take the words back and apologize does not mean there are no consequences to that friendship. Of course there are consequences. That friendship might never be the same. In the same way, let's say you trusted a good friend with, it, with an important secret, and that friend went and blabbed it all over town. But they come to you and say, oh, will you forgive me? I really messed up. You can forgive them. You, you can be made right with them, but you don't have to resume telling them your secrets. Consequences and forgiveness, they're not the same thing. You might choose to tell them again. Forgiving them does not necessitate trusting them all the way down. Many, many times, I would almost say nearly all the time, we live with the consequences of our actions. Sometimes God's gracious, and He doesn't make us live with them. He undoes them in His mercy, but forgiveness is always granted by God. Consequences, they still come. Saul here, instead of waging a battle against God's enemies with Samuel's support, he ends this chapter in, in despair, and the nation suffers for his rashness. And it's important to remember, the more power you have, the more responsibility you have, the more wealth you have, 
often the greater consequences for your sin. Now let's just turn the passage on its head for just a moment here, and we're going to finish with this. Saul is essentially a negative example. It's like, all I've said so far, this whole sermon basically is, here's how Saul messed up, here's who who we don't want to be, you know, all, all this stuff. What's the opposite of Saul? We might say it this way. The opposite of Saul here in this passage is someone who does God's work in God's way. Saul is supposed to be fighting the enemies of the people of God. He isn't. Saul is supposed to be waiting for Samuel. He doesn't. Saul is supposed to be resisting pressure, trusting in God. He doesn't. Saul is supposed to be a good, righteous king. He isn't. The more we look at Saul, the more we understand him, the more we're going to sense a need for Jesus. Because what if there could be a good king that we could trust to be patient? What if there was going to be a true king who would fight all the battles he was supposed to fight? What if there was a king who would never give in to the pressures of the moment? What if there was a king that we didn't have to worry about? Is he going to go astray? Is he going to go mess up? What if there was a king who always did right? See, if you invert the colors of this passage, what you see is an outline of Jesus, the king Saul should have been. And think about it, what are the consequences of a good king? Instead of a nation suffering for the sins of its king, Jesus will suffer for the sins of the people. Instead of the enemies of God running rampant, trampling the land, the enemies of God will be sent fleeing by Jesus. Instead of being abandoned by God, the people will be brought close to God. Jesus is the one who will do God's work in God's way. The anti-Saul, the king we needed. And now he invites, and please hear me, he invites all the blame shifters, all the religious excuse givers, all those who refuse responsibility and blame circumstances, all of us who give in, When the going gets tough, if you turn to him, he invites you to receive grace and forgiveness, and maybe maybe more importantly, or also, the Spirit of God, which will make you a new person for the next trial and the next test. May you come to him. May May he give you ears to hear. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are indeed the anti Saul, and in some ways the anti of every human king we ever had. You're the one we need to trust, to live rightly, to do God's work in God's way. Reorient us away from the kingdom of self, the kingdom of this world, to your kingdom. Change us, Father. In Christ's name, amen.